0: Well, good morning again. To those of you who are here, as well as to those of you who are joining us online, it's great to be together. I wanted to point out that the flowers that you see here, the arrangements on the stage are um, from Phyllis Dunlap's memorial service, which took place yesterday. And that service, just like her life, uh, reflected and glorified the Lord. I also want to thank you for your prayers and help to our family as um, my stepdad Sterling Theobald, who many of you know and love, went to be with the Lord uh, this past week. So thank you for being such a wonderful family uh, around us. <clears throat> a few years ago, when our boys were still in high school, we took them to New York City uh, for spring break. And we bought one of these little city passes that had all these entrances to the different museums and Um, exhibitions and all and so you you know we wanted to make sure we use that packet and uh, about 4 30 on our last day we got to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and we figured hey it's a big city man it never goes to sleep this thing will be open till late we get there it closes at 5 okay so we like we have a half an hour and like we're going to use our ticket but you could spend days in the Metropolitan (laughs) Museum of Art so we said what are we going to go see so we picked one exhibit. We picked the expressionists. And so we ran, you know, up the stairs and down the hallways and then we found the expressionists room, you know. And then we just walked down the middle. Ah, sunflowers. Ah, haystacks. Yes, I see. Beautiful. Oh, stars, very lovely. People in a park, nice. A cathedral. And then we walked on out and that was our visit. Uh, But you know, it's not a bad way to look at impressionistic art, right? To walk down the middle of the room, because you get the whole picture, you see it for what it is. You know, if you get up real close and look at each brush stroke, you're going to get lost. And not really, uh, you'll lose perspective and not understand what you're looking at. This is kind of the way we're going through Revelation. Not an all bad way to go through the book of Revelation. We're taking rather large chunks at a time. And uh, we're wanting not to get lost in the weeds and try to speculate on every brushstroke, if you will, but keep perspective. What's the big picture? What's happening? And of course, in uh, today's chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we have an incredible picture, especially in chapter 12, of the central cosmic conflict of all time. Now, if you were going to draw a picture or paint a painting that depicts, that represents the uh, great conflict of all the ages, what would it look like? Well, we get that in Revelation chapter 12. So let's dive in. Starting with verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might take, be taken care of for uh, 1260 days. So then we go on and we, we see in the rest of the chapter, this dragon continues to pursue this woman and her offspring and wages war against them. But God protects her and her offspring. So here we have depicted for us the central cosmic conflict of all time. From before the Garden of Eden um, into the Tribulation, we we have this conflict. And who are these parties? Who are parties in this conflict? Well, it's not difficult to figure out who the child is. The son who is born will rule all nations with an iron scepter. This is not a subtle clue. Uh, This phrase comes from Psalm 2. Uh, which is a messianic psalm. And in this psalm, Yahweh the Lord gives his son power and authority to rule over all nations. This is clearly talking about the Messiah whom we know is Jesus Christ. In fact, this same phrase is used of Jesus in Revelation 19 at his second coming when he returns. It's used of him. So we know that the child that is born is Jesus. And uh, in this scene, it goes directly from his incarnation, his birth, He's born to his exaltation, his ascension to the throne of God. And this is very typical of apocalyptic or prophetic literature that they compress time. All right? So it goes straight from Christ's birth to his ascension. If you want to know what happens in between, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right? That can show you what goes on there. But notice that he goes to the throne. So he's in a place of authority and power, a ruling. Who then is the woman? Well, Mary gave birth to Jesus, but this picture is talking about more than just a a single human woman. She represents really the people of God, Israel, the righteous remnant of God's people. Later in chapter 12, uh, this woman is described in uh, verse—this offspring of the woman is described in verse 17 as those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus— Uh, John there is probably talking about uh, Jews who have come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah during the tribulation, Uh, but it could also include all the righteous remnant, those who are faithful to God and hold on to a witness for him. All right, so it's Israel, it's the righteous remnant, it's the people of God, who is the dragon. That one's also not too difficult to discern. A lot of things are hard to understand in Revelation. This one's not too challenging. Uh, we look there in the middle of our text, and we read in verse 7, the great dragon, now he's, he's going to try to take on Michael and the angels in heaven. He's going to wage war in heaven. The great dragon, though, loses, and he's hurled down that ancient serpent That hails all the way back to Eden, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. That ancient serpent called the devil, which means accuser, or Satan, which means adversary, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So the dragon is named. We are given the name of the dragon. It's Satan, all right, along with all of his uh, rebellious fallen angels, which we call demons. So now, there it is. It's set out quite plainly for us that the central cosmic conflict of all time is spiritual. It's spiritual, and the battle lines have been drawn between, on one side, God and uh, his Christ, which is Jesus, and his angels and those who are faithful to him, and on the other side, we have Satan and his demonic forces and those who align with him. That is the central cosmic conflict of all time. It began even before the Garden of Eden, and it's going to escalate and become incredibly intense and dramatic in the tribulation time period, but it's also the conflict that defines our time as well. Now, lots has been happening this year and and a lot of um, ideas and words and concepts have bubbled to the surface and we're all scrambling a little bit to understand them. One is this idea of um, critical race theory. So I've done a a little bit of reading on that and according to critical race theory, the world can be divided into uh, oppressors and oppressed. And the problem with that though is that this doesn't come out of a spiritual worldview, and so they are wrong about who the actual ultimate oppressors and the oppressed are. Paul writes in Ephesians, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In several places uh, in the Old Testament, some of the prophets, they... Uh, describe uh, oppressive, violent leaders as lions who tear apart and devour the people. And Peter uses that very same image in the New Testament when he writes this. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, the thing about Satan's roar is that it often comes to us as a very seductive and deceptive whisper. That's kind of what Paul was getting at when he said, uh, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan oppresses with seductive lies as much as with force. So, we see here that the one who stands behind all oppression is Satan and his demonic forces. He's the great oppressor. All who knowingly or unwittingly line up with him, regardless of race, ethnicity, class, gender, they join him in his oppression of mankind. So if Satan is the oppressor, then who are the oppressed? Well, all people, actually, all people, Uh, Paul wrote that all of us were at one time under the dominion of Satan. We read this in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So Satan oppressed all, deceived all originally, But he has a special, violent hatred for God's people. It's a little unnerving, isn't it, to have an adversary like this. But I want you to know something about this dragon, this oppressor, Satan. He is a defeated enemy. He's a defeated enemy. Remember, he wasn't able to snatch up that baby when it was born and gobble it down and destroy it. Instead, that baby ascended to the very throne of God. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. That baby who was born is the Messiah, and he has power and authority to hurl Satan down. So this is an interesting counterintuitive idea. The lamb is stronger than the dragon. The lamb is stronger than the dragon. Keep reading. They, that's God's people, this righteous remnant, triumphed over him, over the dragon. How? How did they triumph over the dragon? In their own strength and power and wisdom and ability? No, they triumphed over the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. Because of what Jesus did, God's people triumph over Satan and his schemes and his deceptiveness and his accusations through faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Christ's victory on the cross stripped Satan of any legitimate power and authority over us. We we actually read this in Colossians 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that's Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you enter into his victory, his cosmic victory over sin, death, and Satan. None of Satan's accusations can stick to those who have been cleansed and washed and forgiven, purified by the blood of the Lamb. It goes on, though. Not only do God's people triumph over Satan by the um, power of the blood of the Lamb, we also read there, and by the word of their testimony. They clung to the testimony of life change and forgiveness and hope and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God, the very power of God, that brings salvation to all who believe. Not only that, but they, they, they overcame Satan because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They loved Jesus more than their lives. They recognized that the love of Christ, the unfailing love of Christ, is better than life itself. And Satan has no power over people who love Jesus more than life. Because they know that Jesus is their life and is their hope for eternal life. Satan is the great oppressor. But he's been defeated by Jesus, who is the great liberator. All who have been set free by Jesus, regardless of race, ethnicity, class, or gender, join Jesus in his mission to set people free spiritually. That is why one of our value statements as a church is this. The church is in the business of helping people find hope and spiritual freedom. Hey, let's read that out loud together, including all of you online, watching from home. Let's read this out loud together. The church is in the business of helping people find hope and spiritual freedom. All right, liberating people from the oppression of Satan, his lies, his deceit. That's chapter 12. Chapters 13 and 14 are going to talk about the real worship wars, and we're going to see how Satan tries to deceive and tries to steal the worship that really belongs to God. So chapters 13 and 14, the real worship wars. Now, the real worship wars have nothing to do with what style of music uh, we like best or which instruments we prefer. The real worship wars have to do with who you're giving your heart to, who has your heart. That's what the real worship wars are about. And we see here that Satan is doing everything he possibly can to deceive people into worshiping him instead of the lamb, instead of Jesus. And he, 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 he couldn't overtake God's throne in heaven. And so he, he still wants to usurp God, and he wants to take what is due God. He wants to receive the worship that is due God. And so in every way, he's going to counterfeit the truth. He counterfeits God. He counterfeits Jesus. He counterfeits the truth in all kinds of ways and we see it come out in chapters 13. We're probably now definitively back in the tribulation period. What's gonna happen here uh, in chapter 13 uh, takes place during the tribulation. However, it it is in line with what's been happening the whole time, it's a part of this cosmic conflict. It's par for the course. Uh, Satan is consistent at least in being a deceiver and using different power structures, whether it's political or spiritual, to deceive people into worshiping him instead of Jesus. He's been doing it all along. It's only going to get worse here. But but what we see is also happening today in many ways, even though this is talking specifically about the tribulation. So Satan is forging, he's faking, he's counterfeiting God's ways. And we have here in chapter 13 what some people call the unholy trinity, of Satan and the two beasts, the beasts from the land and the beast from the sea. And uh, what you'll see here is that it's all about worship. Notice that it's about worship. We're going to jump in on verse 2 here, chapter 13, verse 2. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. This is probably some kind of a political leader. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but that fatal wound had been healed. Uh, The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. What? That's such a counterfeit, right? Right? Because we know what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me. All right? So go. Uh, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and you're to, you're to spread this gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Je- Jesus is the one. But no, there's going to be a counterfeit here. Satan's going to counterfeit it. Gonna kinda wanna, uh, he's going to kind of want to copy. He's into copying. But it's a very deceitful kind of counterfeit look at verse 8 all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the lamb's book of life the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world so we just let's review the second beast real quickly he comes out of the sea he had two horns that look like a lamb looks like a lamb but when he talks it sounds like a dragon A dragon that looks like a lamb. Okay, counterfeit. It's deception. Uh, And this second beast does all he can to make everybody worship the first beast, but in reality to worship Satan. He performs wonders and miracles and signs. He calls down fire from heaven. He makes a statue speak. He does all kinds of things that people say, Wow, must be real, must be true, but it's all deception. Satan, again, is the great deceiver. He's a liar. He can twist anything. I think of God's warning in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is is what Satan does, and he'll do it through these political and religious leaders who will deceive many. Most, but it's not new, it's not new. Let me give you an example, a more current example of of deceit, of trickery. Uh, Some years ago, some sociologists did a massive research on what teenagers believe in America, the beliefs of teenagers. And so they interviewed uh, thousands of teenagers. In the meantime, those teenagers would be in their late 20s. All right, they're adults now. And uh, they found that they held a lot of common beliefs. And so they, they kind of put these, uh, pr- these beliefs uh, under a title, and they called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, um, no, no one goes to the church of moral therapeutic deism. <laughs> you know, no one says, I'm a moral therapeutic deist. I mean... that. This is just a technical or academic term for a group of ideas or beliefs that um, typify this age group a few years ago. They're adults now. And and here they are. And here's the thing about them. Remember, uh, the beast had two horns and looked like a lamb, but when it talked, it was a dragon. Okay. So these things kind of on the face of it look pretty good, but you got to think about it. You got to think about it. So here they are. Uh, Number one, a God exists who created the world and watches over human life on earth. Which, on the face of it, I would, of course, agree with. The problem is that this God is not defined and is up for reinterpretation by every individual. It is not uh, defined by the God of scriptures, who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, doesn't uh, in any way demand that we worship Jesus as the expression of of God who gave himself for us. That's number one. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, which is taught in the Bible and in most world religions. So I'm all for God. Uh, I'm all for people being good and nice and fair, okay? That too sounds really good on the face of it. That's a desire. We want to live in a civil, harmonious, uh, unified uh, community. This is good. Um, but again, the problem is, who, what defines these terms? And good, uh, if it's not defined by moral imperatives of the Bible and is defined by the culture, well, some behaviors um, which the Bible calls sin, you know, will be tolerated as good because the culture views them as good. And, to, and actually, to call certain behaviors sin as according to the Bible, would be seen as intolerant and hateful and therefore bad. And so, who is it that determines these things? Of course, this is the moralistic aspect of moralistic therapeutic deism, is uh, we want to feel moral and we want to do good. That's a genuine desire of people's hearts. Uh, But we also want to define that ourselves. Uh, And that is deceitful. Here's the third one. And this is the therapeutic part of moral therapeutic deism. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. <clears throat> well, I want to be happy, that's for sure. I can totally understand this, and what uh, even our concept uh, is the Declaration of Independence, right? The uh, preamble that says the pursuit of happiness, that's what it's all about. Um, well, okay, I, I understand that, and yet it's a very self-oriented kind of a thing. Whereas the ultimate good is me feeling good, me feeling happy. And oftentimes, that happiness is really defined as pleasure. That it's all about my pleasure. And that becomes, in the end, a very self-defeating kind of philosophy, kind of view of things. <clears throat> Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. That's the deistic part of this is uh, God exists, but he's kind of a genie for me or a vending machine or a butler or a therapist who comes at my beck and call when I need him, but otherwise I can kind of do what I want. It's a wonderful arrangement. And uh, finally, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. Well, again, that sounds good on the face of it, and I can understand why people think that way, but it is not biblical. It is not the truth of Scripture. It is, the Bible says no one is good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that our only hope is Jesus Christ, because Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't live. Jesus is good. And he obeyed to the bitter end, and he went to the cross, and he took upon himself the punishment for sin that you and I deserve. And it's through faith in him and his sufficient and complete work that we have the hope of heaven, reconciled and reunited with God. Jesus is our hope. Moral therapeutic deism may lead to a gentler, uh, more civil society, but it doesn't actually lead to transformed lives and eternal hope of heaven. And therefore, it is a very seductive and deceptive kind of lying. And this is the kind of twisting of truth and partial truth that Satan is absolutely the best at. He's the world's most insidious spin doctor. All right, He knows how to lie. In, in the end, uh, his lies, uh, e- even though, for instance, with, with um moralistic, therapeutic deism that that actually ends up putting humans right at the center of that religion, if you will. Uh, Really, it's it's the worship of man, but it's in the end the worship of Satan himself rather than the lamb. It's not easy. It's not easy to stand up against Satan and some of these deceptions, and it comes at a cost. We read in uh, chapter 13, verse 10, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And then later in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. We need to think, and we need God's grace, and we need God's help uh, in the face of this kind of deception. Well, the good news is that many people do hold on in faithfulness, and they, they have God's wisdom, and they hold on to the gospel truth and God's grace. And so what we see in chapter 14 is uh, another glimpse of, the, of those who have been faithful. We see the 144,000 who have been faithful witnesses uh, to Jesus Christ. And we see them singing a new song, and they're joined by a myriads of heavenly uh, beings in praising and worshiping the Lamb. Again, it's about worship. And uh, we see these angels uh, flying over the earth. And in verse 7, this great angel is proclaiming the eternal gospel, chapter 14, verse 7, and it shouts out, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship, there it is, worship, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Calling all mankind, worship the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. Uh, We read and sang the truth that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will ultimately acknowledge the truth. But how much better? How much better to do it today? To do it now? There is a worship war raging for your heart. There's a worship war raging for your heart. Remember that conflict, that cosmic conflict that was portrayed in chapter 12? It takes place in each person's heart. Satan is trying to deceive, trying to seduce, trying to get us to worship something other than Jesus, the Lamb. And usually he's trying to get us to worship ourselves, the work of our own hands. I told you that Sterling was with us the last couple of weeks under hospice and so I, I sat at his bedside and in those situations you have to think a little bit about life and mortality and death and realizing this will be me someday. Right on the cusp, right on the edge, right up against eternity. And I sat there and I thought, am I ready? Am I ready for that? Will I be ready when the time comes? And in studying this, I realized that it has to do with worship. It has to do with worship. Who am I really worshiping with my heart? Another way to think about it is, what am I filling my heart up with? What am I really filling my heart up with? Our hearts are are made to long for and to find its satisfaction and fullness and completeness in God. But Satan gives so many substitutes, so many attractive substitutes. And I I had to do a heart check. And what am I filling my heart up with? Is my heart divided? Am I trying to have a foot in both camps? Am I trying to have my cake and eat it too? Am I trying to worship myself and God? And is that going to cut it when I'm here at this point? (sighs) I think of what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. What about your heart? Overcomers, those who will overcome, worship Jesus with an undivided heart. Is there anything that is keeping you from worshiping Jesus with an undivided heart, with worshiping not only by holding on to the truth, but by following him with your life? Is is there something that's dividing your heart? What will it take to be able to worship him wholeheartedly? There's a battle raging A worship war for your heart. Who's winning it? I'm going to call the band up, and they're going to lead us in a short song here at the end Change My Heart, O God. And I don't know about you, but this uh, last week or so, as I sat there, I needed to do a little changing of heart, recognizing where my heart was divided. And where, and where I wasn't wholeheartedly giving myself and allowing God to fill me, allowing God to be the one who fills me with his grace, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his hope, his gospel. And so as we sing this, uh, maybe the Spirit wants to do in your heart a work and, and to confess and to repent and to release and to get rid of Those things that are keeping you from worshiping Jesus with an undivided heart. And you know, sometimes we need help with that. And that's why we have discipleship counseling uh, folks. But that's why we're here as a community of believers to walk with each other through this and to help each other. It takes courage and wisdom and grace. And we need each other for that. So let's stand together and sing, uh, Change My Heart, O God. my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Uh, sing that as a prayer, and we need your help. Uh, We can't change our own hearts. We need your help, and we invite you and ask you to work in our hearts to win the worship war for our hearts. We want to give our hearts to you fully, completely, wholly, but it is a battle, and there are lies, and we can be deceived, and so I pray that your spirit would do a, a work in each one of our hearts to make them undivided, wholehearted, in their worship of you. And we thank you that this is exactly what you want to do for your glory and for the praise of your name forever and ever. We're so thankful that the lamb is stronger than the dragon, that we don't have to live in fear, but teach us to love that lamb and to know him more and more and more until one day we see him face to face. In your name, amen. 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 Today, this week, and these coming weeks, there's so much coming up at WO.